Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Talking in the Dark. In the church, we pray for the welfare of others all the time. Does it really do any good? Or do we do it just to feel better about ourselves? Join us for the message, Praying for Others. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist. <laughs> Bless you. To worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, in the church, we pray for others all the time. But does it really do any good or do we do it just to feel better about ourselves? We're going to be talking about that a little later on in our worship service. You can give. I would also like to uh, encourage you to give to the ministry of this church. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org, through our Church Center app, or by simply mailing a check to the church the old-fashioned way. We have two scripture readings this morning. The first comes from the book of Job, chapter 42, beginning with the seventh verse. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly." For you have not spoken of what is right of me, as my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of John Chapter 17, beginning with the first verse. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. But now that I am coming to you, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself." so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. This is the word of God for the people of God. When the biblical book of Job opens, the man Job enjoys a charmed life. He has a large happy family, he has great wealth, he has the favor of God. But then one day Satan challenged God, saying that Job was only loyal to God because he had received so many of life's blessings. If Job were to experience misfortune, then his devotion to God would evaporate. 
So God allowed Satan to take away Job's blessings. In a single day, all of Job's flocks and wealth were destroyed. And most devastating of all, all of Job's children, seven sons, three daughters, were dining together in the eldest brother's house when a great wind came, swept down the house, causing it to collapse and to kill all inside. Job tore his clothing, he fell to the ground, and then he worshipped and blessed the name of the Lord. Well, Satan went again to God and said that if God allowed Satan to take away Job's health, then Job would curse God. So Satan caused Job's body to be covered by these great, grotesque, weeping sores from the top of his head down to the soles of his feet. And at that point, even Job's wife said, just to curse God and die. But Job remained silent. And then three of Job's friends came to console him. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they sat in silence with Job for seven days, which he found very comforting. And then they started to offer him advice, which he found much less comforting. They insisted that Job must have committed some terrible sin. Otherwise, he would not have suffered such misfortune. But Job insisted that he had not committed any sin or had done anything to deserve this suffering. Moreover, what had happened to him was a miscarriage of justice. Yet he never cursed God. After a very long time where he and his friends debate and argue and discuss back and forth, finally God appears to Job in a whirlwind. And from the whirlwind God spoke, and actually God got rather sarcastic with Job. God said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Well, surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what was its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Well, God essentially said that the, the way that the universe works or what God's purposes might be were simply beyond Job's ability to understand. But God also said that Job's friends had spoken inaccurately when they insisted that Job must have committed some terrible great sin. And so while it may be a mystery, God says suffering is not always the result of sin and sometimes good people suffer. The things that Job's friends said had angered God, so God ordered them to offer sacrifice and to ask Job to pray for them. And so Job did pray for his friends, and God forgave them for speaking such foolishness about things they didn't know anything about. And then God restored Job's fortunes double what he had before, double his wealth. God even made up for Job's dead children with another seven sons and three daughters. And the Bible says that Job's daughters were the most beautiful in the land and that Job was so rich that he even had enough wealth to give his daughters an inheritance along with their brothers. The book of Job ends with these words. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children 
and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. Well, there's a happy ending if there ever was one. Well, the book of Job is one of the most theologically complex books in the Bible. It speaks towards the reasons for suffering, the goodness of God, the nature of evil, and also about humanity's just inability to understand any of it fully. But the book also presents some very naughty, complex theological problems. Why would God allow Satan to bring such evil upon Job just to win a bet or to prove a point? Many readers have also pointed out that you can't just simply replace the children that Job lost with more children as if that makes everything all right. Nothing God can give him will ever erase the trauma that both Job and his wife have now gone through. And yet the bottom line of the book of Job is that we will never fully understand why we suffer in this world, and yet despite it all, God is good. There is so much about this book that intrigues readers of the Bible. And one of these intriguing features is the fact that God has Job's friends ask Job to pray for them. And though there is much mystery, and what Job's friends said had angered God, God still seems to be interested in facilitating a reconciliation between Job and his friends. Evidently, God at least saw that Job's friends meant well. Well, intercessory prayer, that's the type of prayer that we pray for the welfare of others, the type of prayer that Job just now offered for his friends, intercessory prayer seems to be part of God's intention for us. And we see this further in the prayer that Jesus offered to God on behalf of his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. The passage that Wesley read is from a section of the Gospel of John called the Farewell Discourse. So for several chapters in there, Jesus gives his disciples his last instructions before his arrest. And this discourse ends in the prayer that we find here in chapter 17. Jesus is offering intercessory prayer for his followers asking God to give them unity of purpose, protection from evil, and sanctification in the truth. And furthermore, Jesus makes it clear that he's not only interceding for his own disciples, he's also including all of those who will be touched by the ministry of these disciples as they go out into the world. So though we find this type of prayer in both the Old and New Testaments, it nonetheless remains a mystery. And if we're honest... Many of us will admit that we harbor questions or even some doubts concerning intercessory prayer. So does praying for others really work? Does it really do any good? And if it did do some good, how is it that we ever really know that it was because we prayed? So maybe we pray just to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, or sometimes we pray because we just don't know what else we can do for someone. Questions about prayer are understandable. We all know people or situations where we prayed for someone and all turned out well. And other times, despite how much time we spent on our knees, tragedy was still the result. There often seems to be no rhyme or reason in prayer. And so the reality is that prayer just ultimately remains a mystery. Well, this is an answer that someone like me finds particularly hard to accept. 
because I like to think of myself as a very logical and analytical person. This is great advantage, by the way, if you actually ever go to seminary. Uh, logic and reason are essential tools in the study of theology, and the more logical and analytical and reasonable it are, the, the better grades you'll make on your papers, which is, the, of course, the most important thing when we go to seminary. But some questions just can't be answered, and those just drive me crazy. If you're anything like me, you'll find it just as frustrating. And the problem is, is that prayer in gener general, intercessory prayer in spe specifically, is highly resistant to logical reasoning. There seems to be no specific or direct cause and effect between prayer and what actually happens in life. The most we see are at best only tenuous connections and sometimes the only affirmations we get are just a gut feeling. And yet throughout the Bible and throughout Christian history, we're admonished to pray for others. So we have a choice. We can reject intercessory prayer as unreasonable and, or we can embrace the mystery and continue praying. Where intercessory prayer reminds us that life and the universe are far larger, they're more complex and infinitely more interesting than anything though that we can conceive. So faith by its very nature will always point to a creation that is beyond our understanding. The reality is that any faith in which all of our questions are answered is really not faith in God at all, but rather maybe faith in ourselves that we might have the right answers. The reality of God is always going to be by definition something that we're never gonna be fully be able to wrap our minds around. That's what makes God, God, and we are not. And we either embrace the unknowing or we live without mystery. When we pray for others, we also enter into this great cloud of witnesses. The church throughout its history, we prayed for centuries before us. And then Jesus also himself prayed for his disciples. And remember, he even prayed for his executioners as he hung on the cross. And Jesus still intercedes for us before the throne of God. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. What God wants from us and for us is deep relationship and true intimacy. Therefore, as we have said now countless times throughout this sermon series, honesty with God, honesty with ourselves is absolutely crucial if we're going to experience any real intimacy with God. As we've said, God already knows everything anyway, so we might as well be honest. But honesty is not only desirable, but in the end, it's a necessity. If we have any hope of growing up emotionally or spiritually, that is. Because the truth is that we will get stuck whenever and wherever we stop being honest. Any relationship, including our relationship with God, but also our relationship with others, it's never going to grow or develop beyond the level where we might stop being honest. And being honest with God also includes being honest about whatever it is that's in our hearts, uh, whatever it is our, that is our heart's desire for ourselves and for others. And sometimes we're not sure what to pray for, but it's okay to start with telling God what it is that we really want. Some of us are afraid we'll pray for the wrong thing, but 
I think we can still pray for whatever we think is best and yet still leave it in God's hands. For example, we may decide to pray for a young person who is graduating from high school. And she has several choices before her. She can decide to go right into the job market or go into the family business. She can decide to go to college or maybe go to trade school or maybe a tour of duty in the military is the best option for right now. But regardless of all these options, we may strongly believe that a college education is the best way for her to go. And so I'd say it's, it's okay to go ahead and pray for the young graduate to see the light and to attend college and then do well and once she gets there. But the truth is that ultimately we don't know what's in another person's best interests. So while we can pray for college, we can also pray that God leads her in whatever way or path is right for her. And we can pray that she's able to find a satisfying career that ends up being more than just a job, but is a fulfillment of God's, <clears throat> a fulfillment of God's goodwill for her <clears throat> and answer to whatever ministry in life she is being called to. In this case, we have been honest with God about our heart's desire for another person, but we have also left it up to God to know what's best. In a more difficult situation, we may have a friend who struggles against a relentless disease. We earnestly pray for his healing and recovery, but we also acknowledge that God heals in more ways than just physical. And most of us have had to watch a parent or a spouse or someone we love suffer through their final illness. And at first we pray for healing, later we pray for comfort, and at the end we pray for release. But in reality, we have prayed for healing all along the way. Our prayers have included physical healing and emotional healing and spiritual healing. Even to the point where death itself becomes the final form of healing. Praying this way is an honest way to pray, but it also keeps our focus on God, what God is doing, what God thinks is best. And it puts our prayers and our wants and desires in a proper perspective. We prayed honestly, but we've also acknowledged God's goodwill and sovereignty. Steve Harper, the author of the book upon which this sermon series is based, says this, Our part is to pray. God's part is to weave everything into the tapestry of the divine will. This is that type of nevertheless prayer that we talked about a few weeks ago. We pray, but we also pray that nevertheless, God's will is done. This type of praying also can help us make the distinction about things that we should continue praying for or things that once we have prayed for it, we can just leave it in God's hands. And it's not always easy to tell the difference between those two things. But intercessory prayer is also related to forgiveness and reconciliation. Of course, we pray for our friends and our families. But as we saw in the story of Job, we also pray for our friends and our families when they have wronged us or disappointed us. And after the example of Jesus, we also pray for our enemies. Again, praying that nevertheless, God's will will be done. 
When I was at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, the last remaining part of the great temple where Jesus would have worshipped, the last time I was there was just a few months after I had gone through a deep, deep hurt. And yet, as I was trying to decide what to pray for at the Western Wall, because there's a tradition there that if you write out your prayers on a little piece of paper and then you stuff them in the cracks of the wall, then that prayer is more powerful than 10,000 prayers said anywhere else. And if you go up to the Western Wall, go up close, you can see where people have just stuck all their little teensy-weensy little pieces of paper in the cracks of the wall. And I was trying to decide what to write on my paper. And I kept hearing God speak to me, telling me to pray for the people who had hurt me. And I didn't want to do that. I only had one little piece of paper. There's only so much you can put on that little piece of paper and stuff in that little crack where hundreds of people have stuffed in before. There's only so much room. But God just kept speaking to my heart. And so I just, on that small piece of paper, put the names of the people who'd hurt me, and then I just put God's will, folded it up, and put it in the wall. I guess I felt better after that. I'm not sure. But I think if that's what God was calling me to do, then I did the right thing. When it comes to intercessory prayer, we will never have all of our questions answered. But while we may never know exactly how prayer works, it certainly doesn't hurt. Because how many of you, if you know someone's praying for you, doesn't it make you feel uplifted and cared for and loved? I know it does for me. When we pray for others, then our, other, then our love for others is inflamed. And I mean this in a good way. We develop the mind and heart of God, and we're able to see others through the eyes of Christ, how Christ sees them. And this moves us to action and puts into a position where we can then serve as the answer of prayers of others. Oswald Chamber was a, um, Chambers was an early 20th century author and evangelist. He's best known for his book, My Utmost for His Highest. In his book he wrote, intercession means that we rouse ourselves up to get the mind of Christ about the one for whom we pray. So may we rouse ourselves until we have the mind of Christ for everyone we meet. Amen. Now let us, with the confidence that we have as the children of God, to pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remember, thank God for at least three things every day, and try praying the Psalms. I really do recommend that. And so now receive this benediction. Proclaim the good news, be persistent in prayer and do the work of the gospel, and carry out the ministry to which you have been called. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.
We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll conclude our sermon series, Talking in the Dark. You'll find audio recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.